Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen with another campaign edition of Primetime Politics. It is day 17 of the election race. Canadians will make their decision on September 20th. Today, the main party leaders are in Ontario and British Columbia making promises about mental health, housing and the deficit. Coming up on the program, the Conservatives and Liberals are neck and neck and the polling numbers present challenges for all of the leaders here. David Coletto from Abacus Data will join me with the latest shifts in voter attitudes. And the leader of the Assembly of First Nations will join me to discuss what she wants by way of commitments from the federal parties. But first, to the day on the campaign trail. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming out today. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau began his day in the Ottawa suburb of Canada, where the party is trying to hold a seat in the face of a conservative challenge. A series of national campaign polls now show the Liberals and Conservatives running tied and the NDP on the rise. Trudeau's focus today was on mental health and the challenges facing so many Canadians during the pandemic. Trudeau promised a re-elected Liberal government would send $4.5 billion in new health transfers over five years to the provinces as long as they use that money for mental health services. This funding and this new transfer will mean everything from shorter wait times to more mental health professionals on the job. We'll also invest in 1,200 new mental health care counsellors at colleges and universities and develop a distinctions-based strategy with First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. And as the polls tighten, Trudeau is stepping up his attacks on the Conservative leader. Again, Justin Trudeau invoking the specter of his Conservative opponent dismantling public health care and other social programs. We can't afford Aaron O'Toole sitting across the table from Doug Ford or any other premier. Not on health care, not on mental health, and not on vaccines, schools or child care. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole was also in Ottawa today, back inside the Conservative Party media studio for his daily campaign announcement. O'Toole's pledged today that a Conservative government will balance the budget within a decade by winding down pandemic supports, investing in targeted stimulus measures, and reining in spending. When you run endless and reckless deficits, when you rack up that much debt, when you don't have a plan to balance the budget, Inflation goes up. The cost of everything, including gas and groceries, goes up. You also put our social safety net at risk. Aaron O'Toole was also pressed again today about his promise to boost health care transfers to the provinces as part of his plan to increase funding for mental health without telling the provinces how they can spend the increased federal funds. We will help highly affected sectors caught by this pandemic so that those jobs are preserved. We will grow the economy so that we can get back to balance in a responsible and equitable way without cuts. That is our plan. It's why we launched it on the first full day of this campaign. Every Canadian family deserves a recovery. What a good looking group. The NDP leader Jagmeet Singh campaigned in British Columbia at a stop in Coquitlam. Singh promoted his promises to make housing more affordable, including trying to push out buyers who purchase renovate homes and then flip them for a profit without even living in them. Singh would increase the taxable amount of their capital gains profits on those properties from 50 to 75 percent. 
we don't want economic growth to be driven by rich investors that want to make profit off of housing or foreign investors that see an opportunity to invest in our Canadian housing market, driving up the cost of housing for Canadians who can't afford a home. So what we want to do is to unlock the ability of Canadians to buy their own home. And to do that, we need to tackle the housing prices. We need to build more homes that are in people's budgets. And that's really our goal. Singh also promised an NDP government would take measures to tackle the criminal component involved in increased housing prices. We've seen how directly money laundering and criminal activity are driving up the cost of housing. We can also tackle that. And while the BCNDP has done a lot to tackle it provincially, it's really something that needs federal partnership. Madame. Well, Quebecois leader Yves-Francois Blanchet campaigned in Sherbrooke today, where he was joined by area candidates. Blanchet defended Quebec's law banning the wearing of religious symbols on the job for public sector workers, and he called on other party leaders to commit to not challenging or supporting court challenges against the law. And Green Party leader Annemie Paul continued to campaign in Toronto, where she's trying to win a seat. She focused today on the need to take measures to improve food security for Canadians. What are some of the solutions? We have spoken about them for years. We will speak about them again, and we will remember that things are interconnected. A guaranteed livable income for all, universal pharmacare, universal childcare, affordable housing, all of the building blocks for a life with, with dignity will ensure that there is more food security for those who need it the most. Can I get a photo? Of course. <laughs> and that's the kind of day it's been, day 17 of the campaign. The Assembly of First Nations has released its list of five priorities for the federal election and calls for all federal party leaders to make specific commitments to uh, deal with those priorities. Roseanne Archibald is the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, and she joins me now. Uh, National Chief Archibald, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you, Peter. Uh, what is the objective of this document, uh, listing the priorities for First Nations? What do you want from federal political leaders? We want all of the parties to commit to making these five priorities a part of their platform documents to take action that's needed on all of the First Nation priorities, but particularly these five that we have outlined for the federal election particularly. Okay, let's let's go through them uh, in, a, in a little bit of detail here to uh, get a sense of exactly what it is you want to hear from party leaders. The first priority is truth, reconciliation, and healing for First Nations and all Canadians. What are the key commitments you want from all federal leaders uh, to allow reconciliation and healing to continue and to move forward? You know, there used to be a, a thing called the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, and that process was about making sure that survivors had access to services, programs, counseling, healing methods for what they had been through during their time at these institutions of assimilation and genocide, as I call them. And that Aboriginal Healing Foundation lapsed, so it wasn't renewed. And we are finding now, everybody can see uh, that the truth of what has happened to survivors, the truth of what has happened to First Nations and Indigenous people is genocide. And we need uh, certainly to reconcile on that, but we also need healing more than anything. I think we all want to be healed from this process to move forward in a good way, which is why we called the document the Healing Path Forward. Right. 
And so one of the key commitments would be to establish something similar for this day and age, an indigenous healing foundation of some kind that is properly funded, that would work toward healing not only survivors, but intergenerational trauma survivors, which is what many generations of First Nations have been through. In fact, Dr. Pam Toulouse, who's an Anishinaabe Kwai scholar, said that 100% of First Nations people suffer from intergenerational trauma, 100%. And the main uh, issue comes out of these institutions, you know, our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents having to go into these institutions. And many of our little ones now, everybody realizes, have not come home. And this has really triggered that pain again for survivors and as well as their descendants, the intergenerational trauma survivors. And so that's one part of it. But we also have to heal all Canadians. We all have to heal from this. It's not just First Nations, it's all of Canada because we are all, for example, we say we're all treaty partners. We are all in this together. And so I know that many Canadians have been really deeply affected by this issue and the idea that we've lost thousands and thousands of little children in these institutions. And so that's one of the top priorities is truth, reconciliation and healing for First Nations and all Canadians, all right. and that's the... Sure, okay, so you, you, on climate conversa- uh, con, uh, conservation, uh, you want a commitment to ensure that First Nations play a leading role in Canada's climate plan, uh, economic growth and prosperity for First Nations. Uh, what are the key commitments you want from political parties and their leaders to encourage prosperity for First Nations? Well, I have actually proposed a specific process, and it's called a National First Nations Economic Growth, Prosperity, and Wealth Building Table between First Nations and our federal partners. We need major investments in economic development. For example, we need funds that are for our entrepreneurs. We need them to be able to access funds to start their businesses or keep their businesses or expand their businesses. We also need funds for our partners. We have many partners that we enter into a joint ventures with or straight out partnerships. We need a partnership fund, but we also need a major fund for big projects, like $100 million projects. We need all of these things so that we can actually really be a part of driving the economy that is around our communities and participating in those local economies. So that's one of the key things that I am asking for. Can I I ask you, because you raised it at your news conference, that you talk about uh, development and prosperity and and some of these big projects. And uh, you also talked today about, and this comes up in in your uh, priorities for ways to move forward here, you talked about how uh, conflict uh, and Canadians have seen it uh, as negative consequences for First Nations and the economy of the country overall. Uh, you say there's a way to improve investor confidence um, and uh, try to do away with conflict. What is it? Well, I said in the con- in the conference today that at the heart of every conflict is land rights, title, water rights our inherent in treaty rights, those rights are really what is always in the center. And we need to have peace by respecting 
First Nations jurisdiction by respecting First Nations sovereignty, respecting First Nations rights. So when, and we know this, we know that investors' confidence becomes eroded when they see that maybe they don't want to invest $100 million into a a natural resource uh, project or any project if they don't have the First Nation on side. We've seen this with many projects across Canada that have been stalled or that have just not been able to move forward. And so really when First Nations rights are respected and we are at the table and we're a part of that process, then there is peace. And then we can have certainty. First Nations are really at the heart of providing economic certainty for this country because this land is our land. This land was given to us by the creator. We have sacred responsibilities to it. And certainly the peace that we all need comes from us working together and having that mutual benefit from the resources and from the lands and from the waters. All right, you, you, uh, you know, there are some, uh, some proposals in some of the party platforms uh, that we've seen so far uh, that deal with uh, Indigenous issues, First Nations issues. And I think you've talked today about, uh, look, you're just putting out your priorities now, so you'll give them a little time uh, to respond to it. But um, let me ask you about a couple of other things that are that have come up on the campaign. Uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, um, he's talked about, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the flags being lowered to half-mast uh, in acknowledgement of the uh, discovery of unmarked graves at residential schools. And... Um, He's now suggesting that, look, it's time to put the flags back up. What's your response to that? Well, I said in the news conference, you know, we have discovered so far across Turtle Island almost 6,000 children in unmarked graves. 6,000 children. And my example was if you just had one day for each child, that flag would remain lowered for something like 10 to 17 years, 10 or 11. I can't remember the exact amount. Mm. But, you know, to me, it's about finding a way to honor these children. It's about finding a way to heal. And that symbol of the lowered flag is really an acknowledgement of the Canadian government and Canadian society that these that genocide has happened. And how do we move beyond that? If there is a solution of how we begin to move on what we're calling the healing path forward, then maybe we look at those things before we suddenly take away the symbols like the flags being lowered. We have to have something in place. We can't just lower the flags and then raise them back up and not do anything about it. We really need action on it. Okay, uh, let me ask you about another issue. Some Indigenous candidates have been endorsed by regional chiefs uh, in this election campaign. Are you, as the national chief, endorsing a party or a candidate? No, I, I, you know, I have to remain neutral. I have to work with whoever inhabits that space, whoever is elected by the people. That's who I have to work with as the national chief. So I, I have to remain neutral. I did say, though, that we do have many Indigenous candidates, and I want to wish those candidates the absolute best. But I'm not endorsing them specifically, and I'm not endorsing their parties. Okay, let's finish on this. Uh, Will you be going to the Vatican to ask the Pope to come to Canada to issue an apology uh, for the role of the Catholic Church in residential schools? No, I will not be going to the Vatican. I I just did an earlier interview on this, and 
you know, the Pope, according to TRC call to action number 58, the ask is for the Pope to come to Canada to offer that apology, not for me to go to the Vatican to perhaps get an apology or perhaps get some kind of indication. The Pope has to come to Canada, period. And I, I won't be going there for all right, AFN uh, National Chief Roseanne Archibald. Uh, thank you for your time today, uh, today Chief Archibald, and uh, good to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. You as well. Well, with the start of week three of the campaign, new polling shows the Conservatives neck and neck with the Liberals, but uh, some momentum behind the Conservatives at this point, and the NDP is on the rise as well. Let's get the latest on the shifting campaign landscape from David Coletto, the CEO of Abacus Data, who is with us regularly throughout the campaign. David, good to see you again. Uh, let's begin, as always, with the survey details. What do we need to know about the, this new data? So good to see you, Peter. This survey was done uh, from last uh, Wednesday to Sunday, we interviewed 2,000 Canadians eligible to vote in this election uh, using the same methodology that we've done on the last uh, few surveys of, of this election. So, yeah, good sample size. Okay, let's begin with the latest horse race numbers. What's been happening? So we, As you mentioned, we're seeing a tighter race. We've got basically the Liberals and the Conservatives statistically tied. The Liberals are at 33, the Conservatives at 32, um, with the New Democrats at 22 and third. Um, you can see a three-point gain for the Conservatives from last week. Uh, the Liberals are holding at 33, uh, but that gap that they had last week is all but gone. Um, also worth noting that the Green Party is down to 2% uh, nationally. That's the lowest that I recall seeing the Greens in a really long time. And if we compare that to what they got in the last election, it means they've lost, at this point, two-thirds of the support they got in the last election. So... Uh, a really challenging number for the Greens, good news for the Conservatives. And while the Liberals aren't dropping, um, this is a, a much closer race now. Yeah, I have no, David, when we look at those numbers, the, you know, the, you, the Conservatives up and the block on the rise as well. That, if that were to continue, that could be sort of double bad news for the Liberals, right, given the blocks in Quebec. And uh, I suppose it depends where the Conservative numbers are rising. We're going to look at that. But that's something to watch, right? It is. And, and when you... Like if we just go to the regional numbers, I think we can we can Let's see that it, story sure. that, that the liberals are, you know, they're fighting not to use a, I hate using war, war analogies, but they're fighting a few uh, uh, fronts. And in so in British Columbia, we see a, a really close uh, three way race still between the liberals, the new Democrats and the conservatives. Um, you know, the sample size there isn't the biggest. So I, I still think it's a close three way race there. But what's important for the conservatives is, you know, in the prairies in, in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, we had seen. A few weeks back, you know, their margin starting to, to, to shrink there. Uh, it feels like they've, they've regained some momentum in, in the prairies and now have big leads over the New Democrats and the Liberals. But all eyes obviously are always on Ontario and Quebec. In Ontario, we have the Liberals still ahead by seven uh, over the Conservatives. So the Liberal lead in Ontario is holding um, and the NDP have dropped back a little bit from last week. But as you mentioned, in Quebec, we have seen a gain for the, the bloc. They're now ahead of the Liberals in our tracking. Margin of error, it still could be, you know, neck and neck. But, but I think this might be an indicator that, that Mr. Legault, the Quebec Premier, uh, intervened in, in a way in the election last week. And this may be an indicator that, um, you know, the Liberals can't count on uh, their vote staying steady. And we're seeing a slight uptick for the Conservatives. So Quebec is, is also pretty active. Now, lastly, in Atlantic Canada... Uh, we still have the Liberals um, ahead by 20 points 
Um, so they're they're still doing well in that region that they that they hold currently most of the seats. Parties and leaders always, David, poll uh, sort of differently depending on the demographics and the policies on offer. So let's drill down a little uh, deeper and look at vote intention by uh, sex, uh, gender. What's what's happening with male and female voters? Well, we, we're seeing really, and this is showing up in other polls as well that other pollsters are doing, is is a pretty um, interesting gender gap when it comes to vote. So, for example, among men. Uh, we've got the Conservatives ahead of the Liberals by five points, with the NDP well back in third. But among women or female voters, uh, the Liberals are ahead by seven. So this really, you know, interesting dynamic in which, you know, the Liberals are doing much better among women, the Conservatives much better among men. Even the New Democrats do much better uh, among women than they do, sorry, among women than they do among men. So uh, gender seems to be playing a big factor. And if you think about some of the issues that are being discussed, and we'll talk about those later, I think that that helps explain why this this might be happening in this election right now. You also wanted to get a sense of where the votes are right now among those who say they are definitely going to vote. Uh, why is that important? And what are those voters saying about their choices right now? Well, we know, first of all, that not everybody votes. Um, and even those who answer surveys, not all of them will actually vote. Um, in our survey, 70 percent of respondents said they will definitely be voting in this election, which is, I think, a pretty good proxy for, for likely turnout. And so when we look at only that group, we actually see that the Conservatives leapfrog the Liberals into, into first place. They're up to 34. Uh, the the, conservative, the Liberals at 32, so not really much change. But I think it's an indication that the Conservatives have a natural advantage because their support is more concentrated among older voters. They are more likely to vote. And I think it appears at this stage of the campaign, Conservatives are re-engaged. They're reanimated. Um, Aaron O'Toole in the Conservative campaign has done a good job at getting them sort of focused again and excited to vote out the Liberals. And that is playing to uh, to the strengths of the Conservative campaign. So I think it's something to continue to watch, that if the Liberals can't get their voters excited or try to you know squeeze new Democrats, that that's an, an advantage that the Conservatives um, will have right, right to Election Day if it continues. Okay, let's look at how committed the voters are and uh, who might still be swayed. What's happening there? Well, we continue to track this. This number is not a, not, not you know, a big change from last week. 38% of those who say they would, they have a choice, they have a preference, uh, say they could change their mind between now and when they vote. So there's still you know, potential for a lot of change. I, I tell you these numbers today and next week, Peter, they could be very different. We've got debates coming up. We've got you know, every week in a campaign, things, things can, can have a big impact. And again, I just highlight the fact that New Democrat supporters and Green Party supporters are the most likely to say they could switch their mind. So if the perception continues, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that the Conservatives might actually win this election, that dreaded strategic voting that New Democrats hate hearing about uh, could happen if some of those New Democrats uh, are, are get afraid of, of Aaron O'Toole potentially winning this election. Let's move uh, to the desire for change. Uh, that's always a key uh, measure to watch. If, you, if you're a party in power, uh, especially, is there a reason to worry for the Liberals right now? I think it's starting to because we're seeing that number continue to track upwards. Uh, today, 48% of Canadians say they definitely want a change in government. Another 24% say they'd like change, but it's not that important to them. That first number is the one that's most important because back in 2019, 52% at the end of that campaign said they definitely wanted a change in government. So we are only four points behind where we were back in 2019. Now. The Liberals still won that election, right? They won a minority. They got fewer votes, but they won the most seats. But the fact that that number is starting to inch up, and we still have two and a half plus weeks left in this campaign, 
means that this indicator becomes um, real troubling for the Liberals if it continues to rise. Because if you hit a certain threshold, if you get over 55, 56 percent definitely wanting a change, winning a government, let alone a majority, becomes far more difficult in that, that kind of environment. Okay, let, let's, uh, let's jump here to the, uh, the impressions of the leaders. After all, the leaders can uh, help pull a party along or they can hold it back. What are you seeing in these latest numbers? Well, just quickly, I mean, when it comes to the prime minister, not a lot of change. I, again, I think every week we say this, that his, his impressions are pretty baked in. People aren't going to really change their mind about him one week to the next. About equal numbers have a positive and negative view of, Mr., of, of Liberal leader Mr. Trudeau. When it comes to Mr. O'Toole, continued good news. His, his green line, those that, that feel positive about him, continues to go up. It's up three points in a week. He still has a pretty big gap between those who view him negatively and positively. But momentum's everything in a campaign, and he's moving these numbers in the right direction. So I think the Conservative campaign will continue to feel good about that. Um, and then for Mr. Singh, um, the numbers continue to get better, if, they, if, they, if you could imagine them getting much better. Um, he's up two points on his positives this week. His negatives are up two points, too. But still, far more people have a positive view of Mr. Singh than, um, than, than a negative one. And then lastly, for Mr. Blanchet in Quebec, um, he's got the best net approval rating of, the, of all the other leaders in Quebec. And I think, again, that helps explain why the bloc continues to do quite well. And um, I think he's going to be a key factor in the debate this Thursday and then um, next week as well. And what about when we look at how those impressions have been changing during the campaign? Well, we ask people, you know, over the course of the campaign, have your impressions been getting improving or declining for each leader? Just a quick snapshot shows that, you know, Mr. Trudeau's had a tough campaign. More, far more people say their views are getting worse than better, whereas Mr. Singh and Mr. O'Toole uh, have net positives, meaning they have a little momentum right now, particularly Mr. Singh, where more people who see him are saying, I like what I'm seeing. So this is a good indicator of how the campaigns are actually going, um, and that right now uh, both Mr. Singh and Mr. O'Toole have some positive momentum, and Mr. Trudeau's still struggling uh, to, to, to make a good impression on people as they pay attention to this campaign. And those numbers help explain, I guess, what's changing when Canadians consider their preferences for the next prime minister. Uh, Aaron O'Toole is moving up there as well. He's moving up. He's, he's now four points behind the prime minister. That, that's two points higher than uh, last. Sorry, two, he's, he's two points higher than last week. Mm -hmm. uh, it's getting close, just like the horse race. Mr. Sting has, has pulled back a little bit. Um, and so even on best prime minister or most preferred prime minister, uh, we've got a horse race between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. O'Toole right now. Can, let's run through quickly here as we, we finish up here, the, the sort of top issues for, for the people you've surveyed and who they think is best to handle them. What are you seeing? So, you know, cost of living, uh, improving health care, dealing with climate change, housing affordability, uh, plus many others, um, you know, really capture most people. I think the cost of living, this affordability question uh, seems to be where, where many Canadians are at. And so when we ask them, which of the parties and leaders do you think is best on these issues, we see some interesting things. First, on reducing cost of living, we actually find that, that no party has a clear advantage. Mr. O'Toole is slightly ahead of Mr. Singh and Mr. Trudeau, but you know, no one party is, is, is light years ahead of, of the others, which I think is an interesting indication of why this election still is so competitive. On healthcare, you know, Mr. Trudeau has an advantage over Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh. But again, it's not that big, given the conversations that we've had in the last week about, you know, Mr. O'Toole's position on on private uh, delivery in our healthcare system and the liberals sort of continuing to bring that up. 
we'll continue to monitor this. But so far, you know, Mr. Trudeau is not running away with this idea that he would be best on health care over the other two leaders. On climate change, Mr. Trudeau does have an advantage. Uh, 28% think the Liberals would do the best compared to 19 for Mr. O'Toole and, Mr. Eight, uh, and 18 for Mr. Singh. So climate change is an issue where I think you're going to see perhaps the Liberals continue to, to try to differentiate themselves and remind voters, especially with the prospect of a Conservative government. And they've done that this week where they've highlighted Mr. O'Toole's uh, targets as opposed to where the Liberals want it to be. So climate change continues to be an interesting one. And then on growing the economy, uh, Mr. O'Toole has a five-point advantage over Mr. Trudeau, um, which I th and, and Mr. Singh's well back in third. So this is a, an area of strength for the Conservatives right. and Mr. O'Toole. And then I'll skip ahead to housing affordability. All the parties have released their plans. Again, Mr. Singh, I think today was talking about housing affordability yep. again. He's got a slight advantage on that. 26 for Mr. Singh, 23 for O'Toole, and 22 for Mr. Trudeau. So not a huge advantage, but again, one that could be, uh, could be moving as, as this campaign goes on. All right, David, but to close out our conversation, what's the upshot from these numbers? Well, Upshot's pretty clear that, that this is a, now a clear horse race. The Conservatives are in the game. They, uh, you know, in, in many other polls are leading. Um, so, you know, anyone who thought that this campaign uh, was going to end with a, a Liberal government, we just weren't sure which version. I'm not even sure that's that's a certainty anymore. And uh, and so as we move out of August into September, as people start to pay perhaps more attention, the fact that we have a close race, I think, changes some dynamics going forward and will probably change party strategy as well. All right. Lots to watch for and lots to take from the numbers. David Coletto, as always, thank you. And we'll talk again. Thanks, Peter. Take care. That's all the time we have for this campaign edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen for all of us here at CPAC. Thanks again for watching and we'll see you next time.